Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today we conclude our Real Life Real Issues series on Pennsylvania's juvenile justice system by looking at the final steps in the process, maintaining education, therapy, and ultimately reintegration into the community. The state contracts with multiple third parties to provide schooling for youth offenders who aren't ready to return to their original school and therapy and counseling, substance rehabilitation, and life skills. The River Rock Academy, with its seven campuses and George Junior Republic in Grove City, north of Pittsburgh, are two of those contracted uh, organizations providing educational and counseling services. And we're joined today by Bob Howard, who is Chief Operating Officer for River Rock Academy. Mr. Howard, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us, Sandy Dillon Dick is the Vice President for Treatment with George Junior Republic. She joins us by phone from her Grove City office. Uh, Ms. Dillon Dick, welcome to the program. Okay, I think we've lost her on the phone. We'll get her back. And Bethany Wheeler is a mobile therapist. And this is a term uh, you may have heard this week during Tim Lambert's uh, series on uh, juvenile justice. But uh, we're going to talk more about what a mobile therapist does and uh, just the advantages that uh, someone who who has a mobile therapist uh, that, that they do get. Bethany Wheeler is a mobile therapist also with George Jr. Republic. Bethany, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I want to identify or describe the organizations before we get started, then what you do. Uh, Bob Howard, let's talk about the River Rock Academy. How would you describe River Rock Academy and what you do? We, could, we provide uh, community-based services to at-risk youth and their families, and um, in the form of alternative education and day treatment services. Uh, we work with secondary students as, as well as elementary, um, so basically from uh, grades K through 12. Mm -hmm. So when you say, you know, again, describe both of those things, the differences between like day services mm -hmm. and alternative educations. Day treatment is a program that is licensed through um, well, it used to be called the Department of Public Welfare. It's now the Department of Human Services uh, in Pennsylvania. And um, all referrals are made to that program by the county agencies. So that would be Children and Youth Services and Juvenile Probation. Um, Alternative Ed, which is a very similar program, um, all of our referrals come from the public schools. So those students may or may not be on probation or may or may not be uh, involved with Children and Youth Services. Um, but day treatment, they definitely would be. When do young people come to you? Uh, because, I mean, throughout this week, as we've been talking about juvenile justice, we've heard from many of the probation officers, judges, district attorneys, who have said that uh, their ultimate goal, what they really want to do is you know, have the child stay in the home, work with them, work with the family. <clears throat> when do they come to you? They actually come to us uh, uh, in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, they, we, we are a, an alternative to residential treatment. So um, these students may get an opportunity, a last chance effort um, to work in the community while staying in their homes um, with, the same, with similar types of services to what they would receive in a residential program, all the while living at home. If that works out, great and they move on with their lives, but many times or sometimes it doesn't. And um, in, in those situations, um, then they may go to a residential program, and we may see that student when they're coming out of residential uh, as a step down or a transition back uh, into the community. Mm -hmm. All right, I understand that uh, Sandy Dillon Dick of uh, George Junior Republic is back on the line with us. Ms. Dillon Dick, are you there? I am. All right. Uh, if you would, I'll ask the same question that I just asked of uh, Bob Howard. Uh, tell us about George Jr. Republic and what you do. George Jr. Republic actually has multiple programs 
the program that I'm responsible for is um, a residential program for boys and um, adolescent males, 8 to about 18, although we have a few older young men. And we have various programs um, on our Grove City, Pennsylvania campus. Um, we serve up to about 540 youth at any given time on this campus, um, all residential-type programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going to get back to, because there are differences between the two organizations, I want to turn back to uh, Bob, Bob Howard. Bob, talk about your programming. How does it differ academically from a, a public school? Um, we, we provide a, a lot of individualized instruction. So uh, many of the students that come to us, um, you know, we have, we have the range from anywhere from uh, like a, a third grade reading level all the way up uh, to pre-college or college level readers. So that can be challenging uh, for our teachers. So we may have in our classes, we'll have that gamut uh, across the board that we have to deal with. And we have the curriculum to deal with that um, both through textbook curriculum and, and then also uh, through computers. The, the computers and the textbooks have really helped us uh, meet a, a student where they are academically. Um, and, uh, you know, they have very specific needs when they come into the program academically. They may have certain courses that they need to take and complete in order to uh, fulfill the gr- graduation requirements from their home school district. Um, so it's, it's just important that we find out exactly where they are. We meet with the district and find out what the expectations are um, for when they can return or graduate. They, all of our students uh, either return to school or graduate um, through the public schools. Um, so that that's, it's important that we, we work hand-in-hand with the districts, whether that's in day treatment or alternative education. So they actually do not get a diploma from River Rock Academy? We have a, a graduation ceremony, and uh, they get a certificate from us, but they, they get a, an actual full-fledged diploma from their, their home school district. All right, so... Now, some, some students also, if it makes sense, um, if, they're, if they're well behind grade levels, um, they may opt to test, to sit and test for the GED, which we would prepare them for as well in day treatment. So, and I hate to use the word way, and way meaning the, the W-E-I-G-H uh, part of it, uh, but when you weigh academics or the focus, is there a focus on academics as opposed to something else, or is this all taken together, and what is that something else? Yeah, many times students come to us and we really need to get buy-in from them first. So we really need to, if there's behavioral issues, we really need to focus on them. And that's a primary consideration. But education is also very important. All along the way, we have to meet their educational needs. And hopefully, uh, by the end of their stay with us, we're focusing almost primarily on their educational needs because the behavior has been in check. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that when you are focusing, especially at the beginning, on uh, their behavioral needs? Probably the, the most important thing that, that our staff can do is develop a, a strong relationship with those students, the families, uh, everybody that's involved in their lives, just to make sure that we're all swimming in the same direction, that we're um, doing what we can, uh, and we, we get the buy-in from that student that this is what they want. We, when they come into the program, we, we have ISP meetings, which is uh, an individualized service plan meeting, and it's a goal planning meeting, and what we try to do is, is, uh, what we try to do is, is set the table for where they're going to be going, not only while they're in placement with us, but once they leave and, and uh, you know, what the next step is, if it's a return to the public school, um, if they've completed high school at that point and they're looking at a trade school or a college uh, or a job, we, we, we try to plan all of that out for them in, in that meeting. And then more specifically, we also, if a student is a special education student, we will have an IEP meeting, which is an individualized educational planning meeting. And we'll we'll sit down and uh, and we'll we'll meet with the, the school district and talk about you know what the goals of the school district are for that student in order to complete their education, um, and that that uh, a lot of times uh, is very important. And what if they're not special education students? We still do an educational planning meeting with them. We call smart goals. Um, which is very similar to an IEP meeting, but it's for regular education students. What's the difference between uh, a special education student and someone, uh, a, a child who has behavioral issues? Mm-hmm. 
Many times uh, it's it's the need for an accommodation. Like if if, uh, if there's a student that uh, may be struggling in a certain area and there's areas that we as a provider, as, as a school, can, can assist with, then we make those special accommodations. Uh, sometimes they, they may not be struggling, but they may be excelling, and we need to make an accommodation for that. But it's, it's pretty much about the accommodations necessary to meet uh, uh, what we would not consider to be a regular education student's uh, needs. Sandy Dillon Dick, let's talk more about the George Jr. Republic. Unlike uh, what we just discussed with uh, Bob Howard about the River Rock Academy, as you mentioned, uh, you have a residential campus uh, offering aftercare, including mobile therapists, and we'll be talking with Bethany Wheeler in just a moment. Uh, but first, let's talk about how the students are channeled into George Jr.'s campus. School referrals, juvenile probation referrals, how do they get there? Sure. <clears throat> we actually um, have youth in our program from multiple states, most counties in Pennsylvania. So we take referrals from a number of sources. Generally, the young men that come here are referred through juvenile probation or a children and youth agency. We also have um, two of our closed units that are considered residential treatment facilities. So they are licensed both residential as well as through the Office of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services as mental health treatment facilities. So the young um, men that come to those two units may well be referred via um, a behavioral health organization and not necessarily have um, county or state involvement. Um, Almost all uh, of our youth, though, have significant behavioral issues. I was very interested in um, everything that Bob said because we do very similar things with we have an on-campus school, which is actually part of the public school in Grove City. It's an extension of, in addition to that, in our um, closed units, which are staff-secure closed units, they're not lock-secure. They, there are classrooms within the units that um, address the educational needs, and clearly the behavioral needs um, are, are tied to the academic needs in many ways. Um, oftentimes, these uh, youth are several, several years behind academically, um, and we work with them to get caught up, um, again, with the individualized education plans um, and a lot of academic work, including tutoring, after-school programs, credit recovery. So we address the behavioral needs on the residential side with the youth and involved family, but we also um, hold the academic needs as important and address those as well. Is it accurate to say, because you are a residential facility, that you, I mean, you use the term, the terminology, significant behavioral issues, but is it accurate to say that, I don't want to say last resort, but uh, that the, these kids that are coming to you have uh, been disruptive, have uh, broken the law, uh, and have not been able to get through some of the other programs that uh, counties are offering and uh, some other organizations are offering? Placement is considered the, the most restrictive level of care, and a youth should have failed at other levels of care. That's not to say, though, that there are a small majority that, um, because of the nature of maybe the criminal offense, the acting out, that they may come uh, to this level of care first um, for their own safety or for the safety of the community. But the vast majority uh, of youth that come here have had other levels of care, other programming, either in the community or perhaps in, in other residential foster care type settings. Does that mean that uh, you have uh, uh, some kids and, you, as you said, young men in, in your program that have committed serious crimes? We do. That's not the majority, but we definitely have, you know, youth that have been adjudicated delinquent based on criminal activity. How do you uh, make sure that, you know, the, for the safety, ensure the safety of, of, of the other uh, residents as well? 
there's a, an admission process, and we look at um, a lot of information. We gather a lot of material, and a decision is made whether or not we can accommodate the needs of that individual. We have three units that are considered intensive supervision with very specially trained staff, um, a 3 to 11 ratio at all times. Um, and, and we select those youth that we know that we can work with um, and work with their, their county as well as family members, and we can provide the academics that they need as well. We're going to talk about uh, more about academics, families, and uh, some other parts of this coming up in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Support for Real Life, Real Issues, Juvenile Justice comes from the Cumberland County Bar Foundation. Real Life, Real Issues, Juvenile Justice. Our series concludes today on Smart Talk, and uh, we're talking about the back end, and that's in uh, quotes of the juvenile justice process, educating adjudicated youth, providing therapy, and reintegrating them into their communities. Our guest today, Bob Howard, Chief Operating Officer for River Rock Academy. Sandy Dillon Dick is the Vice President for Treatment with George Jr. Republic. She joins us by phone from her Grove City office. And Bethany Wheeler is a mobile therapist also with George Jr. Republic. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, the number is 1-800-729-7532. I want to turn to uh, Bethany Wheeler. Uh, Bethany, I, ha- I-, I told you before the show, and I learned something this week, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, too, uh, from Tim Lambert's uh, uh, feature, and he's been following uh, Brandy, Brandy Kiefer, who I understand that uh, you've worked with uh, Brandy as a mobile therapist, and uh, hearing her story and her journey through the juvenile justice system, and it's been fascinating, but one of the things that we've learned is the term mobile therapist. I have to admit, I had never heard that before. Describe what a mobile therapist does. Sure. Um, A mobile therapist at least in our program, which is the preventative aftercare program of George Jr., we go into the community with kids and we provide individual and family counseling as well as case management. So what the case management would look like is just various things of helping them meet different goals and address other practical things in their life, such as you know educational issues or um, employment, finding jobs, um, various things like that. Okay, but mobile therapists, and you said go into the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, This makes it sound like you go to the home, uh, that maybe you're even doing more than that. I understand that uh, there are times where you're taking kids to school. Correct, yes. Um, So it does involve a lot of like you said, in the community. So whether that's going into the home, seeing the child at home, I see kids in the schools, um, whether they're in places like River Rock or the school district, um, seeing them there. And then as well as kind of with that case management piece in the community, like you said, driving them to school or driving them around for interviews or um, to meet community service requirements and things like that. So when we think of therapists, uh, very often we're thinking about an, an office setting. But obviously you're not in an office setting unless you you uh, include your vehicle as... Uh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I'm just trying to picture some of these conversations that you're, you're having with some of your clients. Sure. And more of the, the counseling, the therapeutic piece is going to take place in their home or at the school. Schools are very um, collaborative and accommodating to give us private rooms and things like that. Um, so we will have more of those counseling conversations in those settings. But I I couldn't agree more that my car is very much my office. And actually, I tend to find that some of the best therapeutic conversations happen there. Um, There's something about not 
sitting face to face and kind of that feel that I, as the counselor, am just, a, just enough disengaged with having to operate my vehicle that kids really open up. And I find we have some really great therapeutic conversations in that environment. Well, give me an example. I mean, you don't have to talk about anyone specifically, but what do you mean by uh, kids opening up and, uh, you know, having a conversation in the car? Sure, because I think, as as many people have mentioned throughout this week in this series, um, with these criminal behaviors and um, just other behavioral issues, there's there's always these underlying drivers, um, these these issues that they have um, that are really at the root of those behaviors that need to be addressed. And like I said, it's often in those those circumstances where we're just casually spending time together that those things tend to surface. So whether it is um, picking up a client who just got in a fight with mom and is just kind of frustrated to at the end of their rope and we're driving somewhere and it all kind of spills out and then we're really able to start getting to some of the root issues and talking about um, those specific um like criminogenic drivers that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's interesting. It's really interesting because as, as you're describing this, I'm thinking, you know, how often when we are in different settings than our traditional, mm-hmm. uh, that how we change our conversation and sometimes we open up or we let our guard down. We talk differently on the telephone than we do face-to-face right. when you're making that right. body language and seeing, you know, you see that body language and eye contact. And, you know, it's interesting you say that when you're paying attention to the road and, you know, maybe uh, the, the, the child is looking out the window mm-hmm. and it's easy. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's a different kind of setting. It is. So I imagine that as a mobile therapist, because you are going into the home, that you are probably working closer with families. Yesterday on our program, we talked about the role and how crucial it is of the families in getting these young people, uh, you know, their lives turned around and back into the community and, uh, you know, being productive citizens. Mm-hmm. So you do see the families. How closely do you work with the families? Very closely. Um, and it, it does vary a little bit based <clears throat> between different clients and their needs. but. Um, typically with the preventative aftercare program, we see our clients um, three to five times a week. And at least one of those times is a family session, a family-based uh, counseling session. And um, it, it is occasionally even more often than that, um, whether that is um, taking crisis calls, um, dealing with in a more formal family counseling type setting where we're dealing with communication issues, conflict resolution, um, providing consistent accountability in the home and those kind of things, Um, but also just providing the parents with support. Um, I think as we heard even through the series with Brandy, um, just that it's difficult for the whole family and um, providing parents with kind of sounding board and someone to validate feelings of frustration and encourage them as they continue to support their child is a really important piece. So, Bob, I want to ask you about uh, the role of the family. That is what we focused on on our program yesterday and heard how important the family is in uh, making changes in in these kids' lives. How much do you work with the family at River Rock Academy? Quite a bit. It's it's critical that um, we have the family on board, and uh, we want to stay in, in constant communication with them. Um, we have varying degrees of success with that. You know, quite honestly, a, a lot of times we'll have families that are very interested and, and really want to be a part of, of all aspects of, of the student's life. But then we have some that, are, you know, they have a lot of issues going on in their own lives, and it's just hard to connect with them. But we try really hard um, to make that connection. Um, we do some things. We try to catch the kids doing things right not just wrong. So um, we, we, our staff every day will make positive phone calls home, not just to one individual student, but to students across the board who had a really good day that day, just so that we, we kind of look at it as a bank account. You know, we can make deposits in that bank account, and then someday we may need to make a, a less than desirable phone call home, and, and in that situation, then we've made those deposits already, so there's something to withdraw on. Mm-hmm. You know, earlier <clears throat> in the week, uh, d- during our series of programs, I spoke with uh, a judge in Cumberland County who said that, uh, you know, in his eyes, one of uh, the, the best signs for potential for success is the involvement of the family. And what you just described, that uh, you have some where families are very involved and some where families aren't as involved. Mm-hmm. Do you see it the same way? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And we've seen several situations where, um, you know, we may have had in the beginning with some students, uh, you know, a problem with that student. And once we called home, everything changed, you know, as long as, as the students, as the parents supported, you know, our stance with the students if there was a problem going on or reinforced, um, you know, some kind of positive uh, feedback that we're giving on the positive phone call. Um, it just means everything. And as, if we have that parent or guardian on our side, it, it means everything. Sandy, I want to talk about the role of families with, uh, you know, the, the, the children who are in a residential facility like yours. Um, I, I hate to make the comparison with the, the adult criminal court, but uh, you know I have heard many times on this program as we've we've talked about uh, what is most successful, and one of the things that uh, the research has shown and that uh, we have heard is in the adult court when an adult has committed a crime, has been sentenced to a prison, is in that facility. That one of the things that seems to uh, work best is that uh, that person is in a prison that is close to their home and that the family visits very often. have heard the same thing this week when there are children that uh, are in a residential facility like yours. Talk about that, if you will, and is that taken into consideration when they come to George Jr. Republic, proximity to home, getting the family involved? Absolutely. Family involvement is crucial, and we recognize that. When the youth first enters, within the first 24 hours, we want to at least be on the phone with whoever he describes as family and and who he feels connected to. Not only that, do we make the phone call and we have the youth let the family know they're here, they're safe, they're settling in, those kinds of things. We have phone lists so that the, the children can call and talk with their families um, scheduled phone time. It's a key part of our, our um, therapy. We offer family therapy sometimes because they're not in close proximity. We'll do the family therapy over the telephone um, using secure Skype, um, video conference. We have many options. Like Bethany said, sometimes just um, being able to see um, and and have the family where the youth can see and interact, um, it, it allows them to let down the guard. Um, it's kind of like that riding in the car, but it's not the direct as intense. However, we also support in a number of ways having families come to our campus and visit. We have uh, buses that come from Philadelphia monthly. Um, we feed the families lunch and dinner and get them back. And while they're physically present on campus, our therapists will meet with the family and the youth and do um, a family therapy session at that time. We also um, strongly encourage therapeutic home passes where um, the youth go home for two, three, four days. Um, we have some six scheduled home passes every year plus additional weekend home passes um, we know the importance of the family even our group therapy is focused on understanding families family dynamics accepting the family where they are looking at family violence family substance abuse kinds of issues working with the youth and their families and addressing them and also because we have um, the adolescents we also uh, have some youth that have children of their own. So we have a teen parenting program. We work with the local intermediate unit to bring in a specialist. Um, we have groups that are focused on parenting and learning to be a good parent. Finally, one of the areas that we're very focused on is what we call um, family finding. There are youth that, for whatever reason, may be um, in a situation where parental rights have been terminated. So we work to with the youth to find perhaps other family members, extended family, uh, search however we can make connections, um, certainly seeing just the relevance of family and how that fits with everything we do. I want to move on to reacclimation. Uh, Sandy, you have a community-based group home program to aid in transition. Talk about the need for a gradual reintegration. We do. We have um, multiple levels on campus from very secure in our intensive programs to an open campus where the youth 
are walking around, going to campus school, um, walking to activities, um, clubs, those things. But we also have two off-campus group homes located in two different communities where the young men go to public school. Um, they participate in sporting at, the, at that school district, um, ac- outside, outside activities, clubs, um, much closer to what they would be experiencing in a home setting. Um, again, they advance to that level and um, get approval generally through the courts if court involved. Um, but again, the goal is to reintegrate back into their own community, into their own home. And Bob, well, let's talk about the River Rock Academy, too, and uh, reintegrating kids. You know, I don't know whether, whether reintegrating is the right word or not, uh, but once they've come to the end of their time with River Rock, uh, first of all, what tells you that they are ready to go back into the community, that uh, they are finished with the program and they're ready to move on? They've, for the most part, met their goals that were set forth in the uh, the individualized service plan or the IEP as well from the public school. Um, and to us, we call it transition, transition back to the public school or back to the community. I mean, they're really in the community yet, but um, what we're looking for there uh, is trying to tie them into events <clears throat> in the community that um, would allow them to be successful. Sandy talked about um, athletic programs and it's great if we if if, if we could have a, a student that was that came to us that had an interest in sports or developed an interest in sports when they were with us through some of the activities that we do, um, we really would like to tie them into to local athletic teams. We have we've had a lot of success with that. Um, but that there's no better transition to, to, than going back to a team of kids that kind of ha- they, they develop that, that close that really relation. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, why, why is? I mean, we've heard the, often that uh, kids who, who uh, you know have been in trouble or try to stay out of uh, trouble by being involved in sporting programs because it diverts their attention. Uh, maybe they find, yeah. you know, they get that teamwork. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're exposed to positive role models, you know, <clears throat> not just with the coaches that are involved with them, but even a lot of the peers that are on the team as well. Like, you know, they're they're doing all the things that they need to be doing to stay on that team and to be eligible to, to participate in sports. Um, they're, they're learning to sacrifice to a comp for a common goal, um, it, it just doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it can't happen in every situation because of maybe why the student came to us and, you know, the home school district would have to approve for that to happen. And tip, sometimes that'll take an approval of the school board um, to, to allow that to happen. But it, we've had several situations and some really big successes, kids going on to college after that and scholarships uh, that, that students have earned, um, you know, while they participated in the athletic programs. Um, we've had a state champ. Uh, you know, that that left our program, went back to school and participated in track and became a state champ. Good. Um, That's great. Yeah. And we've had a lot of we, – we see a lot of the, the good that comes from, from high school sports. Bethany, since you are not that <clears> – our <throat> other guests are not there on a daily basis, but you're seeing many of these young people in their homes mm-hmm. – you probably are in a very good position to measure progress that that they're making. How do you measure it? I mean, are there times where you, you look and say, oh, just this, this young person is making tremendous progress, but maybe there are those that you think, well, this one's got a little ways to go. Sure, absolutely. And I think um, we're always looking at those, as you've heard a lot this week, those YLS, the youth level of service, those domains, they're kind of those driving factors that have led to criminal behaviors. And I think checking in on all of those specific domains is a really good way to to judge progress. So educationally, you know, how are our grades? How are how's attendance? How's the behavior in school? Um, uh, anywhere from that to like he was just talking about with the like leisure and res- recreation. That's a domain. I mean, that's a big one, too. What what is the child involved in? Are they getting involved in anything? Are they doing productive things with their time? Are they um, finding hobbies that they enjoy, that they want to invest in? Because it builds self-esteem. It builds a sense of um, ownership in their own life and their own time. Um, those are different things that we look at um, 
And obviously refraining from criminal activity and those kinds of behaviors. That's a, that's a pretty good it measure. Is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank uh, the three of you for being with us today. Uh, Bethany Wheeler is a mobile therapist with George Jr. Republic. Sandy Dillon Dick is the vice president for treatment with George Jr. Republic. And Bob Howard is chief operating officer for the River Rock Academy. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We conclude our look at juvenile justice in Pennsylvania by addressing a recent Supreme Court decision that determined life, no parole, sentencing for juvenile offenders is unconstitutional. A later ruling applied that decision retroactively, meaning that uh, more than 2,500 prisoners who were sentenced to life without parole as juveniles, some who have been incarcerated for many decades, uh, could be or will be resentenced resentenced, I should say. Joining us to discuss the 450-plus cases in Pennsylvania are Rhea Shaw, who is Senior Supervising Attorney with the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia. And also joining us is Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. If you have a question or a comment, you'd like to join in our conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, you can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we are at WI, or excuse me, at smarttalk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. All right, there were a couple U.S. Supreme Court decisions that were made. I mentioned the one in 2012 that uh, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, ju- those who juveniles who committed crimes uh, and were sent- sentenced to life without parole, that it was unconstitutional. Uh, then in 2016, another Supreme Court decision came down that made that uh, decision retroactive so that those in the, the, the adult prisons who were committed crimes as juveniles would have to be resentenced. Lancaster County, though, is one that has not done that. District Attorney, uh, Attorney uh, Craig Stedman, tell me why uh, Lancaster County hasn't done that up until now. Um, well, just to, just to back up, just the, the, the law is that you can't have a mandatory sentencing scheme for life imprisonment. And um, having said that, Everybody's going to get resentenced. All our all our cases in Lancaster and all the cases in Pennsylvania, they have to be resentenced, no matter what they what they are. They're going to get that. So we are waiting, and and we sat down actually with our president judge and actually our defense bar. There's a current Pennsylvania Supreme Court appellate case, uh, Commonwealth versus Bats, which uh, is an expedited PA Supreme Court list, um, which is going to. They know that there's no real sentencing scheme that's been set up for these individuals for the retroactive cases to to handle. So. They are going to, we anticipate that will come out in the next few months, and they're going to, they're going to give the parameters, the rules, so to speak, of, of resentencing. Because right now, we're in uncharted territory as to what, what, is, what are the parameters of resentencing in Pennsylvania if we go ahead and do that. So there's a risk, uh, and that if you do it, that when the case comes out in a few months, they're going to say, here's what the scheme is. They're, you're going to actually increase um, appeals again, and they're going to relitigate it because they can say, look, we didn't know what the rules were three months ago or six months ago. Now we have to do it over. And, and this is such a painful thing and such an important thing that you know, I'm definitely of the mindset that we, we have to do this a second time, but let's not do it a third time, and let's get it right. And quite frankly, you know, um, we've actually d- discussed offers with, with the defense bar in some of these cases, and, and they're not interested in it. Um, um, they want to wait, too, because they also, there's a tremendous amount of resources from the defense perspective. They don't know whether they're supposed to have mitigation experts. It's very, very complicated. And when you, uh, something of this consequence and the emotions on, on both sides of the issue, I, I think most people are, are really like, let's just wait and make sure we know what we're doing. So we have uh, attempted to work out some of these. And 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 I understand why the defense is saying, hey, you know what, we just kind of want to wait because it doesn't it it wouldn't seem to me that it's going to be very long in the future as, as to when we're going to have a, a direction and a roadmap for Pennsylvania. Now, you say that uh, you're in uncharted waters, uh, but yet there are other counties across the state, uh, even in some of the neighboring counties uh, to Lancaster County, that have released uh, the, the you know juveniles. So, uh, you know, why not look to other counties and what they've done? 
Well, I think we do look to other counties and what they've done, but we also really have a responsibility to, you know, our individual cases. And I think you have to do it on a case-by-case basis and look at what uh, one of the, the guiding principles I think that people are looking at is the 2012 statute, which gave you some guidelines, but there's no guarantee that the PA Supreme Court's going to follow that. So if that's the sentencing scheme that people operate under and then the BATS decision comes down a few months later, Look, I'm not naive. We've been doing this for a while. I think it's going to be likely you're going to see appeals and say we, that's a different sentencing scheme that we went under. You can try to have people waive it. Um, that's, of course, a, a, a risk as well. And, and like I, as well as I would say, to get things worked out, you have to have an agreement. And we have worked with some of the defense attorneys in some of these cases. There's some that we're just not going to agree on. We know that. And we'll have to litigate them. And, and that's, that's the way it's going to be. But some of the ones that we've extended some, some offers to them, the defense aren't interested in it because they want to wait. So to come to the table, and, and, and have a plea, you have to have the defense and the defendant do it. And, and I can understand why they might want to wait, because they might well do, may, may well do better with the, with the new sentencing scheme. So I think the other aspect is we just don't want to forget is, is there's the legal aspects, and we talk about that from my point of view. This is really one of the worst things that, that I've seen as, as a prosecutor from a victim perspective, because you know, the one thing we, to have a meaningful justice system you have to have is, is truth in sentencing. And, and these cases are all murders. Um, the person were all taken, everything was taken from them. Their stories ended that day. They didn't get any appeals. And, and the, the one consolation we had with these victims' families was we were able to tell them, look, in Pennsylvania, life means life. And, and in many of these cases, we're pleased to, to life without parole. So they had that certainty, and now that's all been taken away from them. So, again, it's not part of the, the, the legal discussion, but it's part of the real-world discussion. And, and it's, been, it's actually just heartbreaking to, to, to have to have these conversations with these family members. And I can tell you, I don't want to have two conversations with them over and over and do resentencing and then go back and do it again. It's just the common-sense thing to do uh, is to wait. And as I said, you know, here, our, our local defense attorneys are on board with that. The president judge is on board with that. So we're not saying that we won't do it. We've extended a couple offers. They don't want to do it, and, and, and it, it, I understand that, and we certainly respect that, and, and we'll wait and, and get the rules, and then, then everybody will do it together, and we'll do it right. Ria Shah is a senior supervising attorney with the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia. Ms. Shah, how do you see this? Well, I, you know, th- there have been some cases that have gone forward, and, and across, the, across the state, over 40 people have already been released, um, 18 people or so have been granted parole and are awaiting release. And, and there are counties that even while they're waiting for the best decision to come down from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, they're moving forward with um, providing mitigation experts and funding for mitigation so that, um, so that the process of the resentencing can begin. Because this is not a, a moment in time, one hearing type of event. I mean, this is something that requires a lot of pre-work in order to uh, put together the mitigation packet and all of the materials that are really necessary to make this resentencing a meaningful um, reexamination of the sentence and a reexamination of of the individual's current um, progress, so that 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 is part of the analysis and in, in calculating the the sentence. So we are seeing we are seeing cases moving forward and and term of year sentences being imposed where individuals are being provide uh, offered, you know anywhere from 13 to 26 years on the low end all the way up to 40 to 80 years on the higher end. Um, and, and the life sentences are not um, off the table anymore, unfortunately. You know, mandatory life without parole is off the table, but life without parole sentences have been reimposed in some, in some cases as well. And so this is something that is continuing to be, um, continuing to be uh, looked at across the, uh, across the state. And I think that is an important point to make is that because you you started off by saying, uh, you know, a number of people have been uh, released. Uh, But just so that uh, our audience is clear, uh, just because they're being resentenced does not mean that they're going to be paroled uh, right away. I mean, some have been, some will be. But as you said, there have been others who have gotten some uh, some pretty serious sentences. But uh, and I think it's it's an important point to to say that the the Supreme Court decisions 
aren't requiring the release. It's requiring the possibility of parole. And so in all these cases, it's, it's looking at whether it's trying to make that distinction that, you know, a person is not irredeemable, is not somebody who is beyond any type of uh, progress or rehabilitation and therefore should have the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves and, and be paroled at some point in the eventual future. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be at this very moment at the resentencing hearing or at another time um, in, in the short distance thereafter. So what is the stance or the position of the Juvenile Law Center as to what Lancaster County and uh, some other counties across Pennsylvania are doing in waiting? I mean, it certainly seems like a reasonable explanation that you don't want to go through this twice, that, uh, you know, you don't, that there really is no precedent out there for it. But at the same time, a Supreme Court has made a ruling. So what is uh, the Juvenile Law, Law Center's uh, position on this? Well, I mean, I, I, I believe that we, we want to see these cases have movement and forward movement in that there is some effort to try and trying to address these, um, these cases so that even if you're not having the resentencing hearings, there are offers of pleas or there are offers where, um, of uh, funding for mitigation services so that, so that the process can begin so that the defense experts and defense uh, attorneys can really put on what they need to put on in order to be prepared for the resentencing hearing. We don't know when Bats is going to come down, and it was argued in December. So and by the way, can I interrupt for just one second, because both sure. of you have referred to Bats. That is the case before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that could establish sure. some guidelines here, just for some background. Right. Um, and this is, this is actually the second time that this cases before the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court. This has gone up, um, and, you know, we are counsel in this case, and, and you know, it's, it's an important case, and it's an important case for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to really determine how these are going to go forward, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ways that, um, that attorneys across the country, or across the state, I'm sorry, can be, um, can be working on behalf of their, their clients who have, have a lot of hope, you know. There, there's been these decisions that have been coming down. You, you mentioned the decision in 2012 um, that then was ruled re- retroactive from the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016, and so there's been a lot of hope that um, there will be a reexamination of, of their cases, of all these individuals. We have over 500 individuals serving life without parole sentences in Pennsylvania. We're the highest in the country, the highest in the world, highest jurisdiction in the world that is, has um, individuals who serving juvenile life without parole sentences, and there's a um, there there is a matter of possibility that there is a, there is somebody that's going to reexamine the, their sentences, and and we're just really um, extending this time in such a way that we're not even moving forward in many cases. District Attorney Stedman, uh, any idea when that uh, Bats decision will come down? So we're, we estimate August or September. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is well aware of what's going on with the state, and you have some counties doing this and other counties doing that, and some counties like, uh, wait, waiting. Um, they know, and, and they're well aware of it, and that's why they put it on the expedited list. So I can't tell you for sure. I can't imagine it's going to be much longer. And, and if I could just sort of, you know, I actually agree with it, with everything she just she said about working on these cases. And just because we haven't gone to court with anything, look, as the, when this all came about, I assigned prosecutors to each one of these cases. Um, we've been in contact with the victims. We are preparing for the resentencing right now. As I said, in a couple of them, we've thrown out some offers, and, and, and they weren't interested in that, and that's fine. So it's not like we're sitting around and, and doing nothing. We're having the conversations. We made sure all the defense had all the discovery that we have. So we're well prepared to proceed once we get the rules. So it's not, it's just, there's, there's nothing in, in the public arena that's taken place. But we're taking it extremely seriously. There are, I mean, I, on, on the victim scale, the importance of victim scale, I'm not sure that you could say there's much more important than this. Having, you know, they first, they lost their loved one, then they think it's over with, and, and now we've got to deal with it. And that's a complicating factor that I think everybody needs to appreciate, that to make offers on these cases now, we are going to surviving victims' families members who have lost their loved one, murdered, and and tell them, you know, remember when we told you that he was never going to get out, that now we've got to talk about offering 25 years or 
20 years or 30 years or whatever. These are, as you can imagine, the most excruciating conversations you can possibly have with somebody. And, and so we can't, there's, there's an aspect uh, uh, of just bringing those people along. And it's a lot easier for us to have the conversation when we have the law to show the family and say, here's the parameters. Here's what the courts have told us we need to look at. This is why we need to offer this. Here it is. Right now, we've got this wide open, ruleless game. Then it's more difficult to have those conversations with the victims. I think you know it's important for people to understand. So we're we are working. We are working hard on these cases. We've delved back into the facts. I mean, some of these you know are very very old cases. People, I had people working on a couple of them that weren't even born um, when the offense took place. So, but we're we are well prepared to go forward the moment the the guidelines come down. And and if we get a court order to say go ahead without the guidelines, then we'll follow that. Um, we, but we, it's very complicated. We only have about uh, two minutes left. I just want to read you. Uh, Mr. Stedman, something there was a, a federal judge who who wrote yeah. uh, the Commonwealth cannot delay the re- resentencing because it says it cannot figure out what state procedure to follow in doing so. Otherwise, a state could always circumvent a United States Supreme Court ruling. Now, yeah. you know, I think that most people, the overwhelming majority of people, would agree with what you're saying when taking the victims. Uh, you know their feelings, their thoughts, uh, the, their their pain into consideration, but the Supreme Court of the United States has made a decision, and you know the point that this federal judge is making is that you're not following what the Supreme Court has said. Well, actually, I, I, we are following what the Supreme Court has said. We, the sentences are, are, are vacated. They're all going to be resentenced, and, and we're waiting for the scheme. Uh, just to point out that particular judge, he's actually dismissed the same arguments from the defense in Philadelphia cases. So we can't really understand why he's, he's singled out Lancaster for the exact same thing. But that really comes down to an issue of comedy and federalism. And federal courts are not to get involved until the state is done. And the state's not done until we get them resentenced. We are abiding by the U.S. Supreme Court decision. We are prepared to go ahead and resentence all these people. The president judge is doing this. Remember, this isn't all my decision. This oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. president judge decides when, the, when these things go. And, and by the way, I only have a... Bar wants to do it. By the way, I only have about 30 seconds, so go ahead. Okay. So, I mean, uh, we disagree with that. We're going to take that to the cir- Third Circuit. Ultimately, if we're ordered by the court to go ahead, uh, even though he ruled uh, in favor of the district attorneys in Philadelphia on the very same issues, you know, we'll respect it. We'll do it. Um, but I just really think that's pretty fundamental law school stuff, that, that the feds don't get involved until the state is done. And, and we're not done. We are preparing for it. We are absolutely going to comply with, uh, with the Supreme Court ruling. And, you know, I'm sure my court, the courts will. And, and we just want to do it right. That's all. Rhea Shah is Senior Supervising Attorney with the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia and Lancaster County District Attorney Craig Stedman. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Support for Real Life, Real Issues, Juvenile Justice comes from the Cumberland County Bar Foundation. Coming up on Monday, we're going to hear about how Pennsylvania would be affected by the new health care law passed by Congress. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fear. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.